This is Jim Pruitt, and you listen to another episode of the Farm So Hard podcast. So I farm so hard, employees want to find me, and then want to hire me. What's 100k to a guy like me? Could you please remind me? Farm so hard, this ain't easy. Working late nights, you best believe me. A race can only go ace. Never want to see another B unless I'm Jay-Z. Farm so hard, let's get paid. What's up, guys, and welcome to another episode of the Farm So Hard podcast. I'm your host today, Jim Pruitt, a.k.a. FarmD in the ED. And today we're going to be talking about the assessment of pharmacy candidates for residency interviews. And this is going to be great for our students and residents that are currently applying. It is also going to be great for those that are assessing these individuals to bring them on site for interviews. So without further delay, I have someone who's going to speak about not only the process of identifying students to bring on on campus for an interview, but also of the process itself. So without further delay, go ahead and introduce yourself for the audience. Hey, my name is Dan Hu. I'm a pharmacist and I work in emergency and critical care settings. I come out of a critical care background, but I've been working mainly in the ER for the last couple of years. And I'm currently working out of Providence St. Peter Hospital in Olympia, Washington. I did my PGY-1 residency there. And so I've been in Washington for about six years now. And I originally came from Hawaii. That's where I grew up. But uh, residency led me to Olympia, Washington, and it's been really good. I've been here ever since. Great stuff, Dan. And for those who don't know you, can you give a little insight into what led you into being interested in ED and critical care? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think, you know, I got into pharmacy school in 2008, and that was right about when the, the economy changed. And I think the landscape of pharmacy really changed in, in at least retail settings. The future that I had envisioned for myself was a little different. And going into fourth year, I started doing some hospital rotations. And my professors were telling me, well, listen, you know, if you want to go into hospital pharmacy, you've got to do a residency. So I applied to, I think I only applied to three residencies. I wanted to stay in Hawaii. And I did not nap. Uh, that was a that was a really interesting, crushing defeat. Uh, you know, at the time I was still trying to think, okay, well, what do I want to do? Someone said, hey, you know, they're opening up a fellowship here, and maybe you should apply for it. And so I said, okay, well, I'll apply. And the next thing I knew, they said, well, the committee picked you. And so I spent that year doing a fellowship in research and academia with the Office of Minority Health at their uh, Food and Drug Administration's Office of Minority Health, and it was. Uh, done in conjunction with the University of Hawaii at Hilo. But I got halfway through it, and I realized that I still wanted to be at the bedside. I desire residency. I want to apply for PGY-1 again. And so with their blessing, I applied and, and I matched. I still pursue a lot of academic activities. Uh, that was a really good experience for me. But uh, right now, I, I spend most of my time at the bedside, and that's where I think I'm the happiest. Hey, that's a great story, and I think it's very inspirational for students and residents that's out there right now. So you kind of alluded to it before, but can you kind of give a little more into how you got interested into evaluating pharmacy students for residency? Yeah, absolutely. That's a, that's also a really great question. Uh, you know, I went through the residency process twice. I went I went through the match twice, and you know that was a really interesting experience because I remember the second time I applied to residency, and I was scared. I, I was not interested in feeling that sting of rejection a second time. And so, you know, I went through the match, failed to, failed to match, went through the match, succeeded in matching. And then after that, we started doing our own residency interviews when I was a PGY-1 resident. I talked to our residency director and I said, hey, I'm interested in being a part of this. I would like to sit on the other side of the table and 
help to interview the next group of pharmacy residents that are going to come on. And so since then, maybe about every other year or so, I'll, I'll sit in on the interviews. Now, second year after I, I finished graduating uh, residency, we, we switched our model. So we've seen an increase in the number of PGY1 applicants. And at the time, ASHP came around and they said, you know, you guys got to really have an objective way of, of looking at all of your applicants. Because up until that point, it had basically been a system of uh, kind of like any job application, right? You just look at all the applications and you go, okay, well, who do I want to interview? Who, who sticks out? It sounds like we need to have a more objective way of doing this. And so we started looking at uh, using a screening tool or a scoring tool and, and seeing, hey, you know, is there a better way that we can we can standardize this so that everyone's given an equal chance and, and we're having a more fair system in place. You know, I, I thought, hey, you know, I think I think there's always room for improvement in this. Here I am six years later, but I think, well, if I applied now with the same CV and the same uh, same application packet, would I even get my foot in the door? It's it's really different now. And you know, I said it earlier. I think you know when I say the landscape of pharmacy is changing, I think it's it's trickled all the way down to affect students now too. Yeah, then you definitely hit it right on the head. There's so many things to look at, and there's so many factors that are involved in assessing a pharmacy candidate when deciding to bring them on site. So, in you, very briefly, can you discuss some of the current challenges of evaluating students and the model that most programs are using today? Yeah, absolutely. So, I think in order to understand kind of the thought process there, I'll, I'll share a little bit of the background to, to what my perspective is on this. Uh, number one, when you are looking at a resident, really our, our ultimate goal when we're looking at, at, at applications it's not just to land the best residents. What we're trying to look at is who's going to be a really good resident, but the, the real goal, the, the ultimate goal is who's going to be an amazing pharmacist. Our goal is to build up good pharmacists, whether they stay with us and help enrich our program or whether they leave us and go on to enrich other programs. What we want to do is see who's going to be the best pharmacist. Now, what we're doing here is we're, we're looking at what Malcolm Gladwell calls the, the quarterback problem, right? Where he's saying, okay, we're if you send scouting talents to look at high school football players and they pick the best high school football players, are they going to become the best NFL players? And, and he calls this quarterback problem because the game is different in, in professional football. You have different strategies, different plays, different, even player physiques. And he's, and he's saying, well, you know, a lot of the strategies that might work in high school don't necessarily work in college, don't necessarily work in the NFL. And so he was, so he's going, how do you predict success all the way in high school when the game is so much different? in the NFL. And that's the same thing, right? How do we predict success in students who are applying when the experiences of a clinical pharmacist might be very different? So we, we use our scoring tool, and I'll tell you a little bit about it. We look at a number of different things. Uh, we look at uh, things like community service, leadership, letters of intent, letters of recommendation, presentations and publications, and work experience. And, and these are broad domains. Uh, this is something that's that's, I think, fairly common to a lot of residency programs. We just did a presentation on this at the Preceptor Conference in Dallas. And in our audience there, we found that I would say the majority of people, when I, when I said, hey, who in here is, is using a scoring tool? I, I think the majority of people raise their hands. So there's only a couple of people that, that are not. Now, the question is, um, how do you know your scoring tool works? So when we are evaluating our candidates, we're giving them all these different points, right? And unfortunately, I can't go into really deep detail on what our rubric is because we have to remain confidential in that regard. So 
Uh, I'll just say broadly, we have six domains and you can get a certain number of points. But the question is, you know, let's say we interview people and we go, okay, here's the group that we interviewed and here's the group that didn't interview. Does the scoring tool actually have the sensitivity to identify people that will be good? Now, another interesting challenge is that what we're doing here is we're really taking what I would say are, are qualitative attributes about somebody. Uh, a lot of these things are qualitative in nature and we're turning into a number, right? So you always lose something in the translation. So, so what we're trying to do is find the, the perfect marriage of, of a way to subjectively evaluate somebody based on what you know of that person and objectively measure their, their, their attributes and, and what, what characteristics they have and, and find a way to compare it against people. So, so part of it is you're always going to lose something in the translation. If you have someone who you have a deep personal knowledge of, there's, there's no real substitute for that. I'll give you a, a quick example of this. And uh, a couple of years ago, we had a, an Appy student who almost all of this person's rotations were at our, our location. And on like the third or fourth rotation, uh, I had this student in the, in the ICU and this student goes, um, hey, I'm kind of nervous about the, the residency interviews. And I said, well, why is that? And they go, well, um, I really want to interview here. And, and I'm worried that I'm going to bomb the interview. And I said, you know, I, I had not for nothing, but I, I think you need to take a different perspective. This is your fourth appy rotation here. That means you've been here for going on 30 weeks now. And there's nothing a one hour or a four hour interview will tell us that we don't already know about you. You've already had your interview, but you just haven't realized it. Yeah, then that's something that comes up quite often where you have a student who did pretty well on appies and they apply to the program and get an interview and they kind of freak out a little bit. But can we kind of switch gears now and talk about your publication? And it's going to be linked in the show notes for you guys. It's going to be titled A Screening Tool to Identify Qualified Pharmacy Residency Candidates. I've given kind of broad swaths of what the tool is designed to do and what our publication is about. But but I'll discuss in a little more detail uh, if you'll give me a couple of minutes about it. Um, so we published a a a manuscript in the American Journal of Pharmaceutical Education. This came out, actually, uh, it, it got its final uh, iteration in, in AJPE this year in 2019. And so that's called A Screening Tool to Identify Qualified Pharmacy Residency Candidates. And that's the project I worked on with uh, my colleagues, Danny Wienhauer, who's our, our op supervisor, Julie McCoy. She's our, our quality um and safety director, and also our PGY1 residency program director, and also Dominic Casanova, who is our director of pharmacy for the Southwest region. Um, and what we did was we looked at actually three years of data on what our scoring tools were showing us for our candidates. Um, this is when we published last year, um, but I've actually got another year of data, and, and it's showing the same trends. So what we did is we, we actually took all of the candidates that interviewed, and we took all of their scores, and we ran the data through uh, a biostatistician. And so briefly, what I'll show you is it's kind of interesting results. What we found is that the, the average total score of candidates increased every single year. So we have a point spread. You know, you can get up to, you know, X number of points. Uh, the total is 15. In 2014 to 2015, there was an average total score of maybe like 8.6. The next year, it went up to 9.95. The next year, it went up to 10.2. And we've continued to see an increase. We have not actually seen a huge statistically significant increase in the number of candidates. So what we're seeing is that the number of candidates that we interviewed 
Um, it doesn't really seem to change because we, we only have four interview days. But of the people that apply, they're starting to look more qualified on paper every single year. I think part of it may be due to the fact that pharmacy schools might might be finding ways to, let's say, quote unquote, groom their, their students for residencies. And part of it is, uh, I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it can be a double-edged sword. So there are some interesting things that come into play with that. Uh, one is that actually after we published this article, I had a professor at a pharmacy school email me. And she said, hey, uh, I'm really interested in your screening tool. Can, can you give me more details on it? And initially, I was I was of the belief that what they wanted to do was improve their own scoring tool at their PGY1 program. Uh, but a few emails later, it turned out that what her real intent was, uh, she wanted to know the inner workings of our rubric so that she could give it to her students so the students could gain the system, essentially, and look really good on paper when they were applying to programs. And I emailed her back and I said, you know, that's not the spirit of what this publication is about. What we're trying to say is, here are some data. What can you do with the data? Are programs making sure that they are doing analyses on their scoring tool? But we're not interested in reviewing the inner workings of it so that students can just make themselves look better on paper because ultimately that won't translate into them being a better candidate. Um, and, and, and there's, there's different, uh, different things that we also find is that, um, for example, one aspect of using statistical analyses on your scoring tool, and this is the message that we were trying to get across. Uh, as far as I know, we're only like the second or third uh, group to actually run any kind of statistical analyses. So just like any, any kind of screening tool, if you're using it to separate people out and say, okay, you know, who do we bring to the table to interview? You have to run some kind of analyses on your program's uh, scoring tool in order to know that it works. Because if you don't actually check it, then you're using a scoring tool that's not validated. And, and so that was the real spirit of the message that we were trying to get across, which is make sure that you're actually validating your scoring tool. Otherwise, you're using a scoring tool with, with no real objective way to say, hey, we are actually capturing the kinds of applicants that we want to capture. All right, then. That was a very cool article. But I think a lot of people want to hear the answer to this question. What are some strategies and different tools and different things that you think that pharmacy schools should incorporate into their curriculum to make their students more competitive for residency programs? One thing that's kind of interesting is um, I, th I think the approach to finding people is, is something that actually starts even before the point where we come in, right? When uh, folks like you and I are interviewing residency applicants for a PGY-1 program. Uh, we're saying, okay, well, who who is going to be the best candidate that we can eventually grow into being a really good pharmacist? Well, that process starts a long time before that, actually. The, the first step of that process, in, in at least the world of pharmacy, really happens from the time that a, a person applies to pharmacy school. So, number one, I think that it would be interesting to compare and contrast the the pharmacy residency screening process with the pharmacy student screening process, um, whereby we would say, okay, you know, can we can we take a look at this process earlier on? Uh, for example, um, I'm of the understanding that the number of qualified applicants to pharmacy schools is starting to decrease in terms of you know the number of qualified applicants versus the number of positions that are available. And 
you know, we've seen that over the last couple of decades, the number of pharmacy schools just has doubled. So, so you have kind of the supply and demand ebb and flow. Um, and I, I think really part of it is one, you know, who's, who, who are the people that were accepting the pharmacy schools? Now, the second thing though is, um, you know, what can pharmacy schools do once they have those folks in the actual program? I, I actually think that a lot of programs are doing it right. I, th- I think a lot of programs are doing a really good job of this. Um, number one, if you have a program that sets up a lot of varied appy rotations for your student, I think that can be a good thing. I would actually make an argument that students should try to do appy rotations at as many different sites as possible because even if you're doing a lot of different types of rotations, if it's all within the same healthcare system, uh, you get, I think, kind of a limited view of the world. So I actually would, would generally say, hey, you know, in order to broaden your experiences, you should go to as many different possible sites as, as you can at different healthcare systems. Um, other things that I think pharmacy schools are doing a good job of, I, I think they're doing a really good job of, of the didactic programs. I think we are seeing that students are being taught by uh, people who are trained clinically. You know, you have the growth of PGY1 programs and a lot of those PGY1 trained uh, pharmacists then filter back into the academic system. And I think that can be a really good thing. Um, one thing that I'll say is, is maybe not quite as helpful, uh, at least in our screening tool. Uh, number one, um, we're seeing that a lot of students are listing things on their CVs like, uh, leadership roles or, or, uh, participation in what we call RSOs or registered student organizations. And, and I would say that you have to be kind of cautious when you're looking at that because a lot of students will list um, a leadership role in that regard, but, you know, we have a couple of area schools and, and I looked at one of them and, uh, they had, they had 96, I think, open positions for registered student organizations in just one year. And so what that means is that there's, there's essentially one or two RSO quote unquote leadership positions for every single student. So again, that kind of feeds into, okay, how are students differentiating themselves? Um, I think that one thing that that students need to do is, is very clearly spell out what their roles and responsibilities are when they're doing that kind of volunteer work or those kinds of leadership positions. Cause you know, there's a big difference between being the ASHP student chapter and organizing a health fair versus say being the, the, the Phi Delta Chi um, secretary or, or the historian, which might mean they, you know, uh, there's, I think there's a difference between being a photographer versus being, um, someone who's driving an actual uh, health fair. Hey, I definitely appreciate that response, Dan. But I got to get to this question. And I think that there are some students out there, some PGY1 residents out there that want to know, like, what can they do? Like, what tips do you have for them to make them look better, make them more competitive when they submit their forecast application? What some things that they can do prior to doing that that can help them stand out amongst other students and residents that are applying for the same position? Great question. So when, when we say more competitive, um, I think there's, there's two different ways to do that. One is, you know, how do you look good on paper? And, and that one is the one that I think is becoming more challenging, right? Because over time, everyone's starting to look, look amazing. And, and, you know, I, I, I kind of, uh, tongue in cheek refer to this as the Incredibles effect, right? Where if you ever seen the movie, the Incredibles from Pixar, you have the situation where the bad guy syndrome, he's, 
he doesn't have any superpowers. So his goal in, in the movie is to give everybody superpowers. And, and, you know, in the typical villain reveal, he goes, well, my goal is to give everyone superpowers because once everybody is super, then no one will be super. And, and his point is that once everybody looks amazing, then it's really hard to differentiate between, between all of these really amazing looking people. And so we, we kind of see it play into, to the types of applications we're getting, right? Where, where the hard data that we have from our residency screening tool shows that on paper, our applicants are starting to look better and better. And you even see other publications, um, that say, well, okay, you know, yeah, we're starting to see a lot of these things don't really help us differentiate. And, and so, so number one is, you know, how do you make yourself look better on paper? I, I think that's tough. I, I think that is actually starting to be harder and harder. And I don't have a really amazing answer for that. Um, I, I would say that, again, trying to take advantage of every opportunity is important. Um, that I, I think that's one thing that I, if I could encourage every student, and I often do, I, I take a lot of students on rotations and I, and I tell them one of the best things you can do for yourself is to just find a way to take advantage of every single opportunity that presents it to you. And the second thing I tell them is, you know, if you don't feel like you're being presented with a lot of opportunities, then find ways to create it. Be, be proactive, not reactive. Don't, don't wait for someone to say, do you want to get involved in, in, you know, this project? Ask somebody, Hey, how can I be involved? What can I do? And, and so I think that's number one. Um, you know, as far as quote unquote looking good on paper, um, having a good looking CV or a good looking application packet, that's part of it, you know, have some genuine substance behind what you're putting on paper and find a really good way to describe it in detail in the actual CV. Uh, the second thing that I think people can do to make themselves a stronger applicant is, is to actually get to know the program. Yeah. Genuinely get to know them. So, you know, every year you'll have students who say, okay, I want to go to mid-year for the purpose of, of, of going to the residency showcase. And actually, uh, I think that might be going on right now as we speak. So, so you have the, the residency showcase and, and students will go, okay, so my goal is to go to the, the showcase. I'm going to meet these residency program folks and I'm going to give them my CV. I'll ask a lot of really good questions and I'll just stand out so that when they look at my application, they'll say, okay, yeah, that was that person that asked really good questions. And the reality is that the showcase is so busy and, and when we greet applicants, it's so fast paced that we don't have time to really get to know them. Um, I would argue that, that, Mid-year is not entirely necessary to procuring a PGY1 residency uh, if, if that's your method for it. Um, and I'll say that I, I did it both ways. Uh, I went to mid-year a couple of times as a student and did not match. And when I went through the match the second time around, I, I chose not to go to mid-year. So, so what I did the second time around actually is I looked at all of the ASHP residency listings on the directory. And I narrowed it to a geographic area, which was Washington State. And I, I said, okay, I'll cast a wider net. And I, I actually then tried to reach out to all of the program directors or at least a resident in the program. And, and I wanted to get firsthand information about, about what the program was like. And so um, the way that I further narrowed it was basically uh, based on who was responding to me. And so I had a lot of opportunities. I, I spent a lot of time talking on the phone to different program directors or emailing with the residents. And, and for people that were willing to take the time to tell me about their program, I was like, okay, you know, this is really cool. 
and uh and my own residency director julie mccoy she was one of them she she spent time talking to me on the phone and i'm really glad she did because i i really think she's just hands down a phenomenal residency director she does such an amazing job with the residents and she's really passionate um and so i think that what what really helps is giving the program an opportunity to get to know you as a person, right? If you do a residency, uh, I'm sorry, if you do a, an appy rotation at that site, give it 110%, show them that you have what it takes to be a resident. Because again, the, the application and all this scoring tool, it's all something that we do because we don't have firsthand knowledge of, of an applicant. But if you know something about that person already, then and that gives you an, an insight into what their character is. What is their work ethic? How do they respond to challenges? How are they clinically? Um, I would I would advocate for students making a really strong effort to to actually find some way to directly communicate with the program with with either a resident or the program director uh, ahead of the time that they apply. And it's not just so that the the program can get to know them and they can they can hey go hey I'm making an effort. It's not just for show because Remember, you have to find a, a program that you're a good match with. It's called a match, right? It's not a one-way match. And so that's the other thing, right? Students need to make sure that that the program is a good fit for them, not are they a good fit for the program alone. It's It's got to be both ways. All right, then. So you've been giving some great advice and definitely been educating us on both sides of the table of assessing a pharmacy candidate. But now that you've kind of said all this, can you turn back the time and just tell us what would you tell yourself or wish someone would have told you before you applied to the residency program? I I made mistakes the first time I applied to residency. You know, I, I don't regret the way things turn out. Um, ultimately, I feel that God had a plan for my life. And so all the things that have happened are are just according to whatever path that he chose for me. But, you know, if I could do it over again, I would do it differently. And so some of the things that I would do differently are, number one, I, I cast a really small net. When I applied to residency the first time around, I only applied to three, I want to say three programs in Hawaii. It might have been just two. And my thought was, uh, at the time, I, I just I really wanted to stay at home. I really did not want to leave Hawaii. But, you know, when you apply to just a couple of programs and everyone else in Hawaii and, you know, you have out-of-state applicants is also applying for them. Then, then it's really competitive, right? You're not giving yourself a really good chance. I, I think one thing I would have done differently is is applied to more programs. I, I don't think I realized just how competitive it was even back in in 2012, uh, which is seven years ago now. Even then, it was really competitive, and and at that time, I don't think I realized it. So, I if I could do it again, I would have I would have done that. I would have done that differently. Um, I think that now that said, you know that doesn't mean that if you're a student and you really want to stay in a geographic region, um, I don't think that means that you should sacrifice everything to do a residency. If you have to understand, you know, think about your life and what's the most important thing to you. And um, the other thing that I think I would, if I could go back in time and talk to 2012 Dan, the other thing I would say is not to have the illusion that residency is the one and only fulfilling thing in terms of your career. And I think that's something that I wish I could tell more people because I remember what it's like to be in that world 
and be at that point in time in, in my career and thinking, okay, I, I remember saying to one of my pharmacy professors at the time, I said, I don't know what I'll do if I don't get a residency. And he very wisely at the time said, well, Dan, if you don't match, you will find a job, you'll make good money, and you can always try again. And that fell on deaf ears because I was like, no, if, if I don't match, then, then my world is over and I'll, I'll, I won't get the career I want. So one thing I would like to say, you know, especially if there's any people applying to residencies now, um, and, and I actually say this to, I have a lot of residents who want to do PGY2s in emergency medicine and, and they're going, what if I don't match for PGY2? Uh, I, if there's anyone who's in a position where you're applying to a PGY1 or a PGY2 residency, if, if you're listening to this, my encouragement is to, to just say, hey, it's not the one and only path to success. So number one, uh, I would have encouraged myself to, to understand that not matching for residency doesn't mean that that career path, the door is not closed forever. I've met a number of people who did not do PGY1 residencies and are practicing in clinical settings, in hospitals and in clinics. And so part of it is, yeah, it might be a different path. It might not be as direct, but you can still get there if you if you really apply yourself. And again, like I said, create opportunities. Apply to those jobs. Uh, if you don't match, then take a job. Maybe work as a per diem at a hospital. Find a way to do some kind of clinical work. Uh, you can volunteer. You can you can even just hey you know work at a long term care facility, work in a clinic. Um, I would say be willing to. Uh, move geographically because there are hospitals who will take people without residencies partially just because uh, they're difficult to staff because of the location. I think that's that's really helpful uh, and it's it's tough. I remember being at that age and in that point in my career and and I was really uh, I had tunnel vision and I think I think now knowing uh, knowing what I do now. It would have helped me out, I think, just mentally and emotionally to be in a better place and to really kind of uh, align what my what my goals and desires were and my priorities in life. There have been changes going on all throughout pharmacy in a retail setting, um, managed care, am care, and just clinical pharmacy in general. And the training is going to reflect that. So what are your thoughts on the future of pharmacy residency training as a whole? Future residency training, I think, is going to be really interesting. Uh, we're actually sifting through some data right now that we we got from a survey that we distributed to emergency medicine PGY2 uh, residency program directors and directors of pharmacy. And some of the questions that we were asking is, you know, what do you think the landscape of emergency medicine training is going to look like in the future? Are, are we going to start seeing uh, are we going to see a growth in the number of PGY2 programs? Will we see a growth in the number of PGY2 program positions? Are we going to start seeing PGY3s and fellowships? Um, my my opinion, uh, my personal opinion, is that the the area of emergency medicine, specifically as it as it pertains to PGY2s, it's going to keep growing. And and right now it's really competitive. If you look at the statistics for the number of programs that are out there, there are less than 100. PGY2 ED program positions every year. Um, and that means every year we're, we're churning out less than 100 PGY2 trained pharmacists in emergency medicine. Um, and, and, you know, I'll talk about PGY2 and ED more specifically because that's, that's my practice focus right now. Um, I don't think that programs are necessarily going to move to PGY3s just yet. 
although I could see that being a possibility. Uh, I think a lot of times uh, pharmacy, uh, at least the clinical track pharmacy, seems to follow in the footsteps of what our counterparts in medicine are doing, our physician colleagues. Um, so I could see it being a possibility that we'll see PGY3s, but I, I don't think EM or emergency medicine is quite there yet. I think we're still looking at a lot of room for growth in A, the number of programs, because right now there's only um, somewhere in the 60s, uh, I want to say between 60 and 65 programs. Um, there's not a lot of them. So I think there's room for growth there. And number two, I think that there's room for growth with the number of positions because most uh, EDPGY2 programs don't have more than one resident. Um, most of them have, have just one. Some have two. I don't, I don't think any of them have three or more. And we do see some of that happening in the critical care section where some critical care programs have uh, multiple PGY2s, uh, even more than two. They'll have like three or four. So, so that's the first thing I think will happen. You know, if we, if we, if we revisit this conversation, you know, if we set our calendars for 2029 and, and we, and, you know, we come back and we have this discussion again, we might be talking about, Hey, you know, Hey, Jimmy, how's, how are your PGY4 residents uh, doing? <laughs> um, but I think at a point, you know, uh, training training goes on and then you have to actually practice. Uh, so I, I jokingly call myself a PGY7 um, because I graduated in 2012. <laughs> <laughs> and um, uh, I, I, don't, I don't know if we're going to see, see fellowships uh, in PGY3s anytime soon. I could see it being a possibility. Um, the other thing you have to consider, too, is uh, where, where's the funding coming from, right? Because uh, I'm of the understanding that PGY-1 programs get some model for reimbursement to the hospitals, but you see that not really being the case with PGY-2s. So, uh, you know, we talk about how the landscape of pharmacy is changing, where we're looking at uh, just the supply and demand of things, where is the demand really there right now? I, I think that we're seeing more and more support from, you know, ASHP and ASEP for putting ED pharmacists in the ED. And, and we're seeing, yeah, there are actual benefits to having pharmacists sitting right there in the emergency department. But until that demand um, is there and, and sustainable, we, we have to think, okay, you know, how do we supply it? Is there funding to, to have these programs? Because, you know, you've got to pay the residents and the fellows. You have to have uh, rotations there that can support it. And, um, my, my guess is that as the number of PGY2 trained pharmacists increases, then we'll start to see a continued, you know, um, positive feedback loop. Phenomenal stuff, Dan. But before we close out, any final thoughts on just assessment, um, just the entire process of residency training before we close the episode out? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm always trying to find ways to look at these data and see what we can do. Um, I think that as time goes by, we'll start to get more data and we'll start to find better ways to tease out our methods for separating the wheat from the chaff, so to speak, or, or separating the cream of the crop, you know, insert, insert other metaphor here. Ultimately, what we're trying to do is, you know, my, my goal is to find students who I can grow into really good residents who we can then grow into really good pharmacists. And those pharmacists then in turn are going to come back and help to train the next generation of pharmacists. Uh, I think back to my residency and my fellowship, and I had 
uh, even my student days, I had, I had innumerable preceptors who invested in me and helped me to grow, knowing that they would probably never get any specific direct benefit or return on investment for themselves, but still investing in me, knowing that, you know, or I guess hoping <laughs> that someday I would then be able to go on and be a successful pharmacist and help patients and help other pharmacists. So, you know, uh, the reward isn't, is, is, the reward is not for us. Uh, we, we help other people learn and grow knowing that they will benefit others and, and, you know, the population at large. So, um, I would always encourage any student who's interested in a residency to pursue it. I think the more, programs that we can have and the more training that we can offer for students, the better it would be. You know, ultimately, I think what we ideally would see is that every pharmacy student who is suitable for residency, who has what it takes, will be in a, will we'll find that training, right? Um, right now, it's still an ongoing trend for even PGY1s where we see that the number of applications, the growth in the number of applications is outpacing the growth in the number of positions. And what that means is that every year, I think there are perfectly qualified candidates who are not getting residencies. And and again, from someone who failed to match uh, the first time I, I applied, it's it's really crushing. It's really defeating. It's it's it can be, I think, very devastating. Um, so so what I want to see in an ideal world is is where we have the number of positions in residencies that are available to match the number of qualified applicants who are, who are good enough to do it, who are of the motivation and the qualifications. The, the other encouragement I have is, you know, for people listening to this, uh, if you're, a, if you're a student or a resident looking at a PGY2, um, be genuine, find ways to get to know the program, find ways to, uh, to really take advantage of every single opportunity that presents itself to you. For, People who are preceptors, uh, like you and I, or people that are uh, program directors or directors of pharmacy, if they happen to be listening to this, um, I encourage you to number one, if you're using a screening tool, find a way to statistically validate it. That's, that's something that I think is really important. If you're using a screening tool, but you haven't validated it, then it's difficult to say, yeah, this thing is totally working. It's doing exactly what we want it to do. Dan, thanks for coming to the show today. This is a great episode. and you, It was a mouthful of information that I'm pretty sure a lot of people out there will appreciate. And I think the audience will listen to another episode of the Farm So Hard podcast. Please go out and check the show notes to get the publication that Dan talked about today and some other information. And I thank you guys and have a good day. Hey.